As is befitting the day in which this is airing, I thought we would start things uh, a little bit differently than we normally do on the show. Instead of show music. This is the first Noel. Starlifter and Roots in Blue United States Air Force Band of Mid-America. Today is the day the Lord has made. And these are the times to which God has decided we shall live. Merry Christmas to you. There is a great leap between what people saw and Christians see and and what people are willing to see and what people can see. Uh, in what we call, in the Christian community, a lot of us call the church age. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis took on a really amazing task. He decided to write the argument for Jesus as Savior, uh, and to do that in a purely philosophical way. Um, Those of us of faith have seen in the book of Isaiah and other books of the Bible a a presaging of a Messiah. And Christ Jesus is the only one who checks all all those boxes. Those of us of faith uh, can read things like um, Hebrews uh, 2, 10 through 13 and, and take great comfort in the a theological framing of this and from that Bible verse. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am, the children God has given me. The book of Hebrews. And using uh, within the book of Hebrews quotes from the Psalms. But there's a great leap between those of us of faith and people who have yet to develop that faith. And I mentioned C.S. Lewis and his great work, Mere Christianity. He began with a vision of a planet and a planet of water. And from that water, there was, there was nothing. We need to go back a little bit earlier, for my tastes, if we're going to make an intellectual argument. We need to go back to the very, very beginning. 
And there are really two, maybe three scenarios. One scenario is there was nothing. And then there was everything. That violates the laws of thermodynamics. It also violates biblical writing. God was, is, now, existed then, always has, and always will. The Alpha and the Omega, all these things. What are the other possibilities? Well, that the earth had always existed. Well, then that really matches the Bible. Something that had always existed and always will exist, but everything in the science tells us that, well, I shouldn't say everything in science, but so much in science tells us that the earth didn't always exist. And that the universe may not always exist and the earth may not always exist. So C.S. Lewis started at a separate point beyond the Big Bang, beyond let there be light. And if you consider a vast ocean of nothing and the probabilities of life coming from a vast ocean of nothing, it becomes rather ridiculous in terms of probabilities. It becomes, in fact, blatantly ridiculous. And there are people who will say that the, the Christ story, the, 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 the story of Jesus Christ is in of itself ridiculous. And there's been attempts to say Jesus doesn't exist. Never. There's no historical record. That's a blatant falsehood. Because there were contemporaries of Christ who wrote about him then. Josephus was a a historian. Well, he wasn't even a historian because he was documenting his current age. He documented Jesus and the Christians and the way and the movement as it occurred. So there's more history and more independent history around the existence of Christ than there is the existence of a Shakespeare But people have always attempted this. Likewise, the modern thing to say is that Christians need to prove God exists. I completely disagree. I think that people who deny the existence of God need to explain some very simple things. What started it? And then what created the complexity? And what is the complexity? The complexity of life is code, and it is very, very complex code. And the odds of it coming about at random are ridiculously small. From Stephen Meyer's book, Signature in the Cell, he's talking about the probability of of even minimally functional protein cells coming about by chance. And the work that he and uh, Professor Dabrowski and others did in this book to determine the probabilities of this happening are intense and it takes a lot of reading. So let me give you just a snapshot of this. He presents a scenario in which a guy is given a bag, a gunny sack full of 10,000 marbles. Okay. In that, in them, there's one red marble. The rest of them are blue. To have a better than 50% chance of finding the one red marble, Slick must select more than 5,000 of the marbles. But Slick has only 10 seconds in which to sample the marbles. Further, it takes one second to find and put each marble aside in another jar. Thus, he could hope to sample only 10 out of the 10,000 marbles in the time available. Is it likely that Slick would find the red marble? Clearly not. Given his probabilistic resources, he has just a one in one in 1,000 chance of finding the red marble, which is much less, much less than one in two or 50%. Now, that's a really important number, that one in two, that 50%, because it is that point when something drops below one in two 
the point at which the chance hypothesis becomes reasonable. In other words, when it's a, a, a one out of two, a chance hypothesis becomes reasonable at one out of two. So what are the odds in that vast ocean of nothing that random mutation, random interactions caused everything to occur back to Stephen Meyer? The odds of producing a single functional protein by chance in the whole history of the universe are actually much smaller than the whole history of the universe or much smaller than the odds of Slick finding the one red marble in my illustration. And beyond that, of course, the odds of producing the suite of proteins necessary to service a minimally functional cell by chance alone are almost unimaginably smaller. Listen to these odds. Indeed, the improbability of that event calculated conservatively as a cha- at a 1 in 10 to the 41,000th power, 10 with 41,000 zeros, completely dwarfs the probabilistic resources of the whole universe. Taking all those resources, 10 to the 139th possible events into account only increases the probability of producing a minimally complex cell by chance alone to at best one in 10 to the 40,861th power for first power. What he points out is there is not enough time since the Big Bang to run even 50% of those trials. If you're going to the quickest amount of time that aminos could join to create a a protein. So in that vast ocean that C.S. Lewis envisioned, the odds of random interaction coming about to create life is, is hilariously small. But from that, something else. If we're going to say that there is an intelligence involved in this, because in my judgment, only intelligence can create, can beat those odds. Only intelligence could beat those odds, something miraculous. And the way they were beaten. Life did not begin without a code attached to it. Code, readable reviewable, testable, shareable, repeatable, falsifiable code has never arisen by chance, ever. That has never occurred. And it is the job of the atheist to show me where it did occur. Now, that doesn't get us to God, but it gets us to an intelligence. You need to overcome skeptics. You need to overcome those odds. And you need to overcome the challenge of meaningful information having ever arisen at random. It has never happened. Our minds instantly see things that are human-made. If you're walking through a forest and you see a square, a perfect square, you're going to know, well, someone made that because perfect squares do not arrive through random interactions. That's not the way nature works because nature has within it code as well. So if we go from the contention and we toss out the contention that in fact, 
it was random mutation that created all this, and we accept the 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 notion that it's an intelligence, then C.S. Lewis shifts into analyzing. Well, what sort of intelligence are we talking about? So let's go through some possible intelligences. Let's start with polytheism. That there's a whole bunch of gods. And a whole bunch of gods are equally powerful and, and equally they're fighting amongst each other. Do you observe that in the creation of the earth? Seems to me some gods that say, well, you know, I, I want things that, that walk on their hands and, and have eyes on the bottom of their feet. That's what I want. I want, I want beings that are, that are blobs and go about floating above the earth. Then they're blobs. And I want beings like that. And, I want some beings that are that are shaped like trees, but they talk. That's not what happened. We have people and animals categorized into pretty predictable, orderly, phylum order species. And we have some commonalities with, with maybe, I, there is one exception. There is a, a creature they found at the bottom of the sea. Um, that has that doesn't metabolize things like any other creature on earth. We're carbon based. We exchange oxygen for, for fuel. A lot of us. You can look at the mammal structure. <laughs> Mammals have some real distinct commonalities. Birds. They have theirs. Even even mammals of the sea have some commonalities with us. And in junior high biology taught us these things that doesn't seem to me to be the result of a bunch of equally powerful gods at war with one another over what the earth will contain i don't think polytheism works because i don't think we see it in our in our heavens if there's a whole bunch of equally powerful gods at war i would think that some days we would have no sun at all because the god who doesn't like the sun would win and there's not going to be a sun i would think that some days you would just have absolutely you know, nothing but sun there'd be 7 10 10 week stretches of well you know what this god he he won right now so now we're seeing a whole bunch of sun and we don't get any darkness and, and the the world goes into a drought and you'd have malevolent gods at war with with more you know caring gods and you would see evidence of this in everything. But there is one set of rules. There's a, when I mentioned thermodynamics, there's one set of rules things follow. There's a mathematical model of life. And why would there be a mathematical model, one mathematical model, if we had a whole bunch of different gods at war, we would end up with a whole bunch of different models for things. So we don't have this. So I toss aside polytheism. I don't think there's a bunch of gods. And you can go to the alien, if you like, and say, well, maybe we were created by aliens. And just you, all you need to do is go back and tell me who created the alien. That's all. You, you, you're simply, you're not, you're not solving anything. You're not introducing a new conundrum because you still need to get to, yeah, but what created the alien? Well, maybe we were created by robots. Okay, well, what created the robots? And you go right back to the origin problem. Well, you, you say a robot arose by chance? No, because robots would contain useful information that has never arisen by chance. You, you, you can't solve the puzzle that way. You simply go back to the beginning, like in that stupid game Mousetrap. I toss out polytheism and negate it. So what gods are we talking about then? Well, that gets interesting. 
And that gets a little bit divisive. If the God that we're talking about is, say, Muhammad and Allah, well, with all due respect to Muslim listeners, and we, we have many, I don't observe a warrior God. I don't observe an authoritarian God, not in terms of force. I don't see a God that forces us to do anything. And my interpretation of Islam, and perhaps it's unfair, is that there's a lot of force employed. That the writing of the of, of Muhammad are it's okay to force people to convert. I don't observe that in our universe. Were that the case, and God was a God of powerful force, and he can force us to do things, why would he need the human interaction? Why would he need the extra step of having humans do the forcing when he could just do the forcing? And I guess you could say the same thing about, well, then why would you need a human savior when God could just save everybody? Well, I think that's the key to this. And I think the reason that I negate the idea of all law, God, is because in my observation of the world, people are perfectly free to choose and perfectly able to see the consequences of those choices. I don't see a God of force. Secondly, and fundamentally, and again with great respect, and it's I do intend the respect. I can disagree with you and still respect you. Too many of the Prophet Muhammad's writings are Muhammad. I don't, I don't necessarily believe he's a prophet. In fact, I don't believe he was a prophet. Are problematic historically. He got a lot of history wrong. Like way off. I don't think that the prophet of God would get simple fundamental dates wrong. And he did. Lastly, I think that there's a violation of natural law. In somewhat of I read of some of what I've read of the of, of the Quran. Natural law such as how to treat children. Now, again, many people who are Muslim and listen to this show modernize and don't treat children in the way that is described in the Quran. And truly, there are some terrible, terrible examples. My wife and I were talking about the Old Testament this morning of, wait, God said to Abram, go sacrifice your son. And Abram was willing to do it. Yes. And then God stepped in and said, well, through an angel and said, no, 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 don't harm the boy. That's different than continue to harm. Also the outcome. The outcome of the radical view of Islam has sustained itself for all these years, and it's far more prevalent than people want to imagine. Radical Islam is far more prevalent than people want to imagine it to be. And in some countries, many countries, 90% of people still believe that if you leave the faith, you should be murdered. Now, I don't think that matches with the natural law, the freedom of conscience, I think we can observe freedom of conscience as a natural law because we know when someone comes to us and tells us to violate our conscience, we feel internally a fight against that. You're telling me to violate my conscience. 
I think that's a natural law type behavior. No, this is my true belief. This is my conscience. And in Islam, I see a requirement that people violate their conscience or be murdered. I don't observe a God who acts that way. Why? Because I observe an abundance. And the abundance I observe is this. We have food, water, we have a privileged planet, and that's a, a purposeful phrase. The Discovery Institute has a great series on the privileged planet where the Earth sits. We're the only planet we know about in our system, and maybe others, that can actually observe its surroundings. We're the only planet in the Milky Way that can actually observe the entire universe. Secondly, we're the only planet with a structure that supports life. And please, please, let's not pretend that what they found on these separate planets is life. There is maybe sign that there was a bacteria there and maybe not. And that may or may not be life. Well, bacteria is life, but there's no, we don't have the samples of that. So from this privileged planet, there's abundance and it is recycling abundance The earth cleanses itself. The earth feeds itself. It's an ecosystem. And the ecosystem allows foods that we grow to actually feed the atmosphere to create more foods. And we are also symbiotic with the things that we eat. Those of us that eat eat meat, and I include in this animals, our exhalations actually fuel plants that we also need. Most of us to survive. Most of us are omnivores. We need that to survive. Certainly, certainly. Animals that eat other animals need plants to survive because they're also eating animals that eat plants. I see that as a God of abundance and I don't see an angry, punishing God, an authoritarian God, a warlike God providing that abundance. I see a caring God providing that abundance. I see a God who wants people to be able to live and have freedom and freedom of conscience and freedom to turn away from him. And in the Quran, I don't observe a God that, that is pro-freedom in that way. And again, with deep respect to people, I can disagree with you and still respect you and I can and I do. Well, that brings us down into the Abrahamic faiths to two. And this is where it gets dicey. And this is the Jewish God, whom Jesus said, I am the son of that God, and Christ himself. Now, I am not educated enough to do a deep theological dive on this. I can turn to the interpretations of the the, the book of Isaiah, which I encourage you to read the entire book of Isaiah and come to understand that 750 years before Christ, he described Christ. He described where he would be from. And he he, he predetermined a lot of things. He was a profoundly voluminous prophet and, and incredibly accurate. He called out countries Assyria, which wasn't even really a country, was going to rise to power. It's like us worrying about Ethiopia. And he told the Hebrew people, he told the Jewish people, you're going to be taken over by countries that right now you don't even, you laugh at. He named kings by name, a king by name. Some 700 years before that king came to power because the country over which he was empowered was not a country. 
basically. So the book of Isaiah is filled with these presaging events and, in fact, descriptions of a Messiah who would come to rescue the people, the remnant. And this is what those of us who believe Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior celebrate on Christmas Day, that event. The Jewish people, most of them, denied Christ as the Messiah. So how come I don't? Many reasons. Number one, the series of events in Christ's life are the single most ridiculous way you would ever fake godhood. I don't think anyone would ever say, you know what, let's invent a Messiah who is from a mother who many people thought cheated on her husband, Mary. So let's start the Messiah off with the least chance of success as being a bastard son. Let's do that. And let's pick someone who is in a relative servant class. This is the, the, the adopted son because Joseph was the adoptive father um, in my structure of the Lord of the universe become child in the, in the Virgin Mary, who I do believe was a virgin. I do believe was visited by an angel and said, you will conceive a child and you will call him God is with us. Or I think it's, it's with us, God. It's a ridiculous way to start a myth. That Mary and Joseph, when big government called them and told them you have to go get counted in the census and you need right now to go uh, to Jerusalem, to Bethlehem, you need to be counted. Big government forced a nine-month pregnant teen. At that point, we don't know for certain that they were married, although it seems that by the time that they arrived for the census, they were in fact married. But it had to be done in a secret ceremony because so many people thought, well, she got pregnant before during the betrothal, just she's betrothed. She wasn't married yet. That's not right. And it wasn't Joseph and all the rumors that swirled. That's not a great way to invent a God. And then to have the God of the universe born in Biblically, we don't know that it was a barn. We know that there was a manger, which was a feeding trough for animals. That's what the manger was. It was just a, it was a, 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 a you know, container out of which animals fed. Is going to sleep in that because there's no room, which many, many scholars will say, well, no, no, that's the family of Mary saying, hey, we can't have you here. We know what you are. You're an unwed mother. Hey, we know what you did. You can't come in in our house. But then it gets even more bizarre. If the God of the universe wanted to arrive and have pomp and circumstance around his arrival, this as my pastor said the other night, he could have gone to every world leader and said, hey, come, uh, heads up, um, my Messiah is coming. He could have done it miraculously and just had a full-grown man appear, just like a Star Trek thing, just beam down, hey, how you doing? I'm the Messiah, listen up. But he didn't. He came in the form of a baby. And to whom did the angels speak? The angels spoke to shepherds. The lowest, I don't want to say lowest form of humanity, but the lowest on the socioeconomic totem pole about a child 
from the armpit of Israel, Nazareth, who's asleep in a food container with his teenage mom and carpenter dad because it seems like their family didn't want him in the main guest house. And he went to Shepherds, the angel. Come and see. And they did. And they saw the signs and the wonders and the star, and they went to see. And they worshiped. And they told. And the powerful at the time are the same as the powerful now. Herod knew that there had been presaged a Messiah to be born. He went to his researchers and said, what's that Messiah supposed to be born? And, and the researchers said, oh, it's the, um, it's, it's here, this, you know, it's probably maybe at this time. And he didn't even go check it out. Now, he's, hey, well, don't we have those out-of-town, like, priest, wise men dudes? Let's have them go. Hey, dudes, go check this out. Like, it's five miles from here, but pop on a camel and go check it out. And so now you have learned men who go and check this out and say, "This, wow, this is the Messiah. This is it. This, this little baby is the Messiah. And they bypassed Herod on the way back. We don't want to tell, we don't want to, we don't want him to know. And then you go through some other things. Moses survived a purge against Hebrew babies because his mother floated him across a river to be adopted by a king's family. Christ Jesus survived a purge against Hebrew newborns because his parents fled to Egypt and he, the God of the universe, was adopted by a father, not a king, a carpenter. Certainly from the line of David, as was presaged, But it was Mary and Joseph who got Jesus to safety in the same place where Moses was raised and then where Moses took the Hebrew people from captivity because God went to Moses, the least likely of leaders, and said, I have a task for you. It is the life of Christ, the relatively short ministry of Christ, though, that to me is the convincing point. Yes, it's the signs and the miracles. Yes, it's the bringing people back to life. Yes, it's the, in fact, miracles of feeding the 5,000. It's the wine into water into wine. It is the healing of the leper. It is the signs and wonders we've read about our whole life. But it's also this. Isaiah said he's not going to be accepted by his people. And he wasn't. But he was accepted by some really unlikely characters. 
And this adds to the bizarreness of the tale. You went to a tax collector. <laughs> you went to a Fauci. And you said, follow me. And Matthew did. And Matthew was changed. You chose fishermen. Not, not the elite, not the powerful, not, not people given to great soaring rhetoric. Jesus chose fishermen and zealots. And he converted zealots who could have led for him an army or at least trained it. And he, no, I, I don't need your knife. I need you. I don't need it. Well, I don't need anything, but I want you. And then it was this. The necessary arrogance. Imagine the scenario where you witness a man who you know, because it's a small community, you know this guy has never walked. You know he's carried about by his family. You watch a man say, your sins are forgiven, stand up and walk. And the man stands up. What is your arrogance level when you say, how dare you? In whose name? By what authority do you forgive sins? And then Jesus said, what is it? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? Which one? It was the predictable arrogance of power. What grew, grew ground up. There was no top down. The Jewish people at that point had become a top down people with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawmakers and the law keepers and the bizarre level of laws. And they'd read laws into laws and then diktats into laws and bureaucratic statements into laws. How dare you move your mat? This is the Sabbath. You moved your mat. Wait a minute. The guy who just gave me back my ability to walk said, move my mat. Sorry, you, you convict me of all the law breaking you want. I'm moving my mat. That man restored my ability to walk. It was almost necessary. In fact, since God did it, it was necessary. Well, and just to add to the ridiculousness of this supposedly invented God. He knew what was going to happen to him. What he would allow to have happen. when he was taken to the cross. This is so wildly misunderstood by people. He didn't just go up on a cross for a little while. They beat him. They spat upon him. They whipped him. They stripped him. They humiliated him. And he had the perfect chance to stop it. All he had to say to the rulers of the day was, I was wrong. You're the king. Instead, he said, you have no power over me, but that which my father grants. He said the very things that would cause them to do what they did. 
And even then, leaders wanted to wash their hands of this. I don't want to take this guy out. Even then, people were given the choice of, hey, do you want a, a criminal and a, and a violent man or do you want Jesus to be saved? We want the violent man. Give us Barbaros. Ridiculous story. And then money was put upon the cross with the two criminals. One unrepentant. If you're truly the son of God, cast yourself down. Another repentant. Please tell me, I'll be with you in the kingdom. Jesus said, truly today I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. And then as they were gambling for his clothes, <laughs> mocking him, I thirst, here's some vinegar. He could have been so incredibly angry. And so ridiculous, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Perfect humility. Perfect. And before he died, he said, it is finished. What? The prophecy. And of course, if it all ended there, then none of this would matter. But the number of people who saw him risen, that in and of itself, persuasive. More so to me, the changes in people. The same Peter who had walked on water until he lost his faith and then Christ had to pull him out of the soup. The same Peter who had seen that man, that God, fully God, fully man, say to the sea, quiet, and everything became calm. The same man who was told when they had to pay the temple tax, Jesus said, hey, Peter, do me a favor, go catch a fish and then look in the fish's belly and you'll find a, a coin and we'll pay the tax with that. What? Yeah, go fish, go find a fish. The first fish you get, there's going to be a, a coin in there. Bring that to me and we'll pay the temple tax. That same Peter denied Christ the same amount of times Christ said, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, never, Lord, never. And then, of course, he did. I, Jesus, I don't know who he is. What? I've, I've, I've never even been to Nazareth. I didn't even know there was a Nazareth. Three times. And it says in the Bible that on the third time, Christ regarded him and looked him in the eye and Peter was shamed. And then the, croc, the, the cock crowed because Christ had said, hey, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. That man changed. And he became an evangelist and a fearless one. And then he raised people from the dead and he healed. And this fisherman became this man of great argument and rhetoric. Something changed. The entire world changed. And Christ's word spread throughout the globe. 
with the initial apostles. And then the person who's become my favorite apostle, Saul named Paul, who later became named Paul. Saul had persecuted the Christians. He was a trained mind. He was the Pharisee of all Pharisees. He ran at the top circles. He knew all the powerful. He knew all the powerful arguments. And he wanted the Christians wiped from society. And he was getting it done. And then one day on the road to Damascus, he met the Lord. And he was shocked. A bright, blinding light. And the people around him saw Saul speaking, but they didn't see to whom he was speaking. Who are you? I am Jesus, whom you crucify. Why do you crucify me? Why do you, or why do you persecute me, Saul? Why do you do that? And then he lost his sight. You're going to be made blind for a little while. He lost his sight. And a good Jesus follower was told, hey, there's a guy. His name is Saul. You need to go help him. You need to baptize him. No, no, he's a he's a terrible person. He's persecuting the Christians. No, this isn't. No, listen, I'm I'm the Lord your God. You're going to go do this. And he did. And there was Saul blind. It's probably this dark room and hiding away and knows he's met God and I'm not worthy and I've been blinded. How can I possibly go save the world? How can I possibly go spread the word? I can't walk. And he was baptized and the scales fell from his eyes. That's where that comes from. The phrase, the scale fell from his eyes. The most prolific of the apostles who traveled the furthest and wrote half the New Testament met Christ in spirit form, not in bodily form. And imagine the apostles saying, what? Now you call this yourself Paul and now we're to believe you're with us. And, and, and he was. And he was beaten into unconsciousness. They thought he was dead as he was around proselytizing. And he said, hey, you know what? I, I'm awake. I'm going back to town. And where did he preach? The, the Jew, Jew, Jewish synagogues. He went there and made the arguments to them. And he converted many. It begins to become less ridiculous. It begins to become a pattern. 11 of the 12 original apostles were martyred happily because they knew where they were going. Tax collectors, fishermen, zealots. Paul, a former attacker. The world I observe is a world with a God who wants relationships with us and in our hearts we seek something larger than ourselves. In our hearts we seek the greater. In the eyes of our own newborns, we see something that, I'm sorry, evolution 
cannot defend. In the eyes of children we don't know, we experience a joy. Evolution doesn't explain that. In the eyes of hurt brothers and sisters, we experience a connection. We experience a need to help. And we experience the joy of when we're able to help. And in our darkest moments, when we truly give ourselves to prayer, the simple act of crying out to the Savior, I need your refuge. I need your stronghold. Often in and of itself delivers us. There's not enough time to tell you personally why I believe. But that's a little snapshot. As inarticulate as I am, as uneducated as I am in things theological, I can tell you I'd happily give my life for my Savior. Happily. Merry Christmas. Christmas.